from Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode, Matt LeVere, our first county district supervisor. Uh, first district covers about 170,000 people, mostly Ojai and Ventura, but parts of Oxnard as well. And uh, we don't have much in common with some of the other heirs, except Matt. So let's jump right in. Hey, thanks, Matt, for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're um, talking about the size of Ventura County, and uh, I guess the the proximate news is you just passed a $2.86 billion budget. That was the big news from this week. Obviously, a budget that size, it takes a, a lot of time to get that together. Yeah. To put the, and so we approved it Wednesday night, uh, $2.86 billion. Uh, big budget, but I think each of those dollars represents services being being provided to the community. You know, we have over 10,000 employees now. You and I were talking, we're actually the second biggest employer yeah. in the county behind the Navy base, which is closer to 20,000. But um, big budget and a lot of work went into it and it was good to, we came together on a 5-0, it's a balanced budget. The county's in a really strong fiscal um, state. Yeah. What was the uh, shifts, any, any uh focus areas uh, different than prior budgets? I know coming out of the pandemic, a lot of things have changed. And, uh, is it changing back? Is it re- reverting to some kind of status quo? What ways do you think it's gonna be just another world going forward? You know, budgets at the end of the day should reflect the priorities of, of, of the board. And I think if you look at our budget, it really reflects our priorities. The way the budget's broken down is, it's about 50% of that budget is money which is directed to certain areas, and we don't have discretion over that spending, whether it's federal or state money, or money that's generated from uh, enterprise funds. You know, we don't have discretion there. But about half the budget, I think it's about 1.35 billion of the budget is our general fund, and that's where we have the discretion on how that money's spent. And if you look at our general fund budget, uh, 40% of it goes to health and human services. That's a lot of our, our, we have two hospitals, 35 health clinics, a very large human services agency, which provides a lot of the social services. Uh, I think one thing that people don't realize about the county is what a a safety net uh, provider we are to so many in the community. And that's 40% of our general fund budget. Another 40% is actually uh, administration of justice, we call it. And that's our public defender, our district attorney, our sheriff's office, and our probation agency. So if you look at priorities, I think two of our biggest priorities are health and human services, and yeah. keeping Ventura County so safe. 20% for all the rest. Yeah. Any fun stuff in there that's new, any pro- new projects? I think what, what, what some of the money that, that's new to this year is largely re- uh, related to some of the new thing um, programs we're trying to effectuate involving uh, homelessness uh, and fentanyl. Yeah, I think Has that been a problem here? Uh, certainly not the way it has been in some areas and like a Appalachian such it's a terrible tragedy what what's happened the you know started with uh, oxycontin prescriptions getting around and then once they cut that off then they moved to the hillbilly heroin and now fentanyl which is just you know it seems almost contrary business purpose if you're killing your customers 
You know, that's a question I get all the time. Why is, and this is all cartel, 99.9% of the fentanyl we're seeing in our communities is coming out of Mexico from the cartels. They're taking um, ingredients, uh, largely manufactured in China. Uh, the, uh, the fentanyl is made in Mexico and it's coming across mm-hmm. primarily our southern border. Uh, but that's the question I get is, this is a, a drug that is so addictive, but you take one little tip of a pencil of it and it could, it will likely kill you. Yeah. It's like and so why would you do that? Hundreds you, of times more potent than heroin. Yeah. I've, I've, and you're right. I mean, so many people are, and we can talk about what we're seeing in terms of the overdose deaths in Ventura County, yeah. but it is killing a lot of people. And that's the question I get. Why would they give a drug that's going to kill uh, their end user? And, and what I've uh, kind of learned through asking that question is that for every one person that ODs and dies, you know, seven new people get hooked. So it's still yeah. a net gain of six. When you know, every 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 time they bring that up here, and so the numbers just that's how it Keep works out going. in the cartel's mind. Well, I noticed a, a very perverse uh, story about the outbreak in uh, West Virginia back in uh, early 2000s, mid 2000s. That and this is interesting. It wasn't a cartel. It was a very distinct group of villagers from Mexico that all came from one area that would go around to these pill mills and hand out, you know, free samples of their their heroin, their hillbilly heroin, just because people couldn't get the pills anymore. But they, you know, noticed whenever somebody would OD that the business would go up because they think, oh, that must be some really good shit. Let's get a hold of that. Yeah. And, f- and fentanyl, as you said, is fentanyl is heroin on steroids. Yeah. And it's it's scary. It's um It's synthetic. You know, you're not relying on a, a poppy season in Afghanistan. Yeah, you don't have to import it from across and labor across and the globe. Labor and weather and all the the impacts that come into farming a product. This is something that's made in a lab in Mexico. Yeah. Well, what is the state of addiction issues like that in Ventura County compared to other places in in it, uh, the state? Uh, fentanyl is impacting every community yeah, across the state. Yeah. I can tell. I can speak in locally. I have a really good relationship with our, our medical examiner who often is, sees the end yeah, result. Yeah, he lives here in Ohio, Charles Levin, doesn't he? Uh, well, that's our public health officer, Doc, oh, Dr. Sorry, Levin, I, I, who, who also very involved in this. But our medical examiner is Dr. Chris Young, and he actually lives in the Valley, too. Oh, but he, um, you know, he's been doing this a long time, uh, over 20 years, and he has never seen uh, a scourge like fentanyl. I think a stat that I, I tell people is uh, in 2017, I believe there were... Uh, 20 overdose deaths from from fentanyl if you look at the calendar year 2022 we had 181 so a 725 percent increase in the last five years yeah, i think that shows what, what's happening here and how devastating it is just right here in ventura county and and what and you look into the numbers it's interesting because a lot of the narratives are uh fentanyl in schools and being concerned for kids yeah. and, and that's that's a real concern but if you look at who's actually dying it's, it's people like you and me. It's middle-aged people are the overwhelming majority of the overdose deaths we're seeing in Ventura County. From, From just the usage patterns. Yeah. It's about 60, mm. 60, 65% of the overdose, fentanyl overdose deaths are between 30 and 60-year-old. Wow. Yeah. What about Narcan? I've heard it's, uh, or I believe it's going to be over-the-counter here pretty soon. I've heard the FDA is considering that. We are doing everything we can from a public health perspective to get Narcan at. It's in our fire trucks, it's in our police cars, it's in our schools now, it's in our jail. Narcan saves lives. I, I, I did a ride along with the Oxnard Police Department uh, about a month ago. And just in that five hour ride along, we did 
we uh, administered uh, um, that to, to three individuals and brought them back in just that five-hour ride along. What, what was it? How, seriously? That was just a cluster, or this is just a routine routine day? I think that's just a routine day if you ask the God, officers. Oh, my God. It, it uh, fentanyl is, is um, proliferating in numbers you won't even imagine uh, in our unhoused population. Well, I notice in our unhoused population, I think the uh, methamphetamines are still quite popular. Very popular. Yeah, just by their um, manic uh, um, behaviors. It's yeah, That's a really good uh, example. When you're um, engaging with our, our unhoused people, or even people who are housed and you see them on the streets, if they have that kind of a zombie-like trance going on, that's usually meth- methamphetamine. If they're yeah. slumped over and... And not doing so well, that's usually fentanyl. Yeah, nodding, the nodding behavior, yeah. They can't keep their heads up. I've seen both, yeah. So, which brings us to, to another um, question. I know that you've been very involved with uh, the homelessness and how, how is that going? Like, it just seems such an intractable problem. It, you know, that, that it's probably, probably the most complex issue I deal with. In terms of solving it and, and being very frank, it's not a problem we're going to solve. It's how do we best manage it. I don't think mm-hmm. we're ever going to truly end homelessness. I, I, th- I don't think that's realistic. Yeah. What part of it do you think is just uh, transient uh, hard times versus mental health issues? It's You, you have to break the, the, our, our unhoused population down into two groups. There's the, what we call the episodic. Those are the people who ended up on the streets uh, usually from a, a bad break in life, uh, mm-hmm. a divorce, lost a job, got injured. And those are people who are, would do anything they can to get off the streets. Yeah. And if you're an episodic homeless, you're usually on the streets for a short period of time. You're incredibly accepting of, of services. And those are the people we have the best results with because there are so many resources to help people you're get off motivated. the streets. The other side of that coin is, is what we call the, the chronic uh, homeless. And those are people who've usually been on the streets for, for over a year. Mm-hmm. At that stage, uh, the longer someone's on the streets, the harder and harder it becomes to get them off. Yeah. And those that's, those are the people that we usually see in the encampments. That's the bigger struggle we have is is building the trust with those individuals uh, to get them to want help, to accept our help. And that's really where we're focusing our efforts right now. I know. Uh, I had Dan Parziel, Mesa Farms, on the podcast. Do you know Dan? I know Dan really well. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick Dan story. Um, I know his partner, Kyle, from town, from the beer business. And Dan actually went to school with my sister. I grew up in the in the Wye Valley. Yeah, you're a local boy. And uh, Dan we can talk about that too. Dan and Dan and Kyle asked me to lunch about a year, about a year and a half ago. And they we had lunch, and he pitched the idea of Mesa Ojai, and wanted to know if if it's something I would be interested in helping with. And if you meet Dan, I'm sure you felt the same way. He is just one of those guys who's so inspiring yeah, and so driven. persuasive. Yeah. And I heard Dan's pitch and I said, Dan, I'm sold. I'll do whatever I can to help you. And we ended up having more and more meetings and ultimately we were able to get him um, a lot of, several million dollars of, of county ARPA money. Yeah. We were able to hook him up with a state program where they got, uh, I think it was about $5 million from the state to, that helped with the purchase of the ranch. And mm-hmm. it's Dan's passion for, for, for the mission of helping our foster well, I kids. I think even as just a, a test case see how how it works because it's small still it's only like 10 beds right it's going to be i think ultimately the goal is 14 14 starting with 10 but as you're right it is this is dan 
wanting to get something started to show that the model yeah. works and then expanding it. I think that's great that it's happening here in Ojai. It must, must, uh, I know that a big part of his focus is the foster care system because the, you know, you get, you turn 18 years old and you're on your own. Yeah, and, and, and any given, no, no skills or resources or. No, think about, I mean, think about how hard it was to, be, to become an adult under the best of circumstances, yeah. a two-parent household with 18 years of familiar support, friend support. Being a, becoming an eight adult is, is still a difficult process. And now imagine doing that with no support, with the trauma, which you and I could probably never imagine, and, and getting a little pat on the backside and saying good luck. Yeah. And I think that's why you see the stats that you know 20% of the people who exit the foster system are homeless the day they exit the system. I'm, I am quite surprised it's only that, that high. One in five, it seems like it'd be one in two or something. Just, yeah, it's uh, but, really but, just yeah. your heart's broken for these kids because they did nothing to deserve this. Nothing. Uh, it's the circumstances of birth. Uh, and, but, you know, I think what Dan talks about, and it's incredibly correct, is that to truly address homelessness, it's not just dealing with the people who are on the streets. It's preventing it in the first place. And if we can prevent some of these foster kids from ever from even going to the streets in the first place, mm-hmm. that's a big way we impact the problem overall. Yeah, I believe that. Or just the way that Dan phrased the program is uh, just a wraparound, like all the just to get them accustomed to having discipline and routines and, you know, taking care of themselves and things that are impossible to do if you're on the street. And Dan, you know, a lot of these, this education they're getting in a, in a one to two year period is, is an education that many of us got one through 18. It's that our families yeah. helped with and they're trying to really give them all of that, which they missed out on and uh, doing it in a truncated period. But and he's a, uh, should be opening pretty soon, right? Isn't Any it? month so, now, I think. Yeah. Well, that's that's a bright spot. Uh, are there any now? You were you got you took office like right in uh, beginning of the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah. Like very early, huh? I was elected in early March 2020, and the world shut down about two weeks later. I took yeah. I formally took office in December, so right in the heart of that that first winter surge, and that was the first year of my job was. 90% pandemic related, I would say. I, I'll bet. Yeah, it was just like hair on fire all the time. Yeah, and you know, a lot of it was, um, a lot of that, that, that work took place right here in the Valley because uh, so many of the services, and, and you know, we're looking at testing sites, looking at vaccination sites, mm-hmm. we're taking, a lot of those sites were in Ventura, Oxnard, some of the large population centers, and I was hearing from my constituents up here that it's hard for someone to, uh, especially when you get older, to, to be able to make it to the fairgrounds to get tested, yeah, to be sure. vaccinated. And so working with so many of the great partners up here, like like Hadi Lakshari at, at the mm-hmm. Ohio Hospital, we were able to prop up that Ohio vaccination Another friend site. of the pod. Yeah, great. Just what a resource up here. Yeah. And um, working with them, they were able to, our public health department, that hospital was able to set up that vaccination clinic, mm-hmm. which ended up being very successful right here in the Valley. We were able yeah. to get vaccines into many of the senior living facilities up here. Um, we, it ended up being... Um, because of a lot of hard work from so many, we were able to provide those resources directly to the residents in the Valley. Yeah. I did feel the response in Ventura County was pretty ramped up very smoothly. You know, you hear about all the problem spots and it didn't appear to be many here. Just, you know, 
you're looking at the overall numbers. Uh, Ventura County fared a lot better than some other communities. We still lost over a thousand people here. It, w- it was real. I, know I lost a few people. I was really uh, there's just this attitude that oh well, they're going to die anyway, and yeah, sure we all are, but you and I both really isn't. If you're infecting someone, you're not giving them the choice. You're no. taking that choice away from them. And I think you and I both know people who are really healthy people. And it got them. It just showed. Yeah, just the cytokine, cytokine flush that just overwhelms their immune system and organs start shutting down almost immediately. It's just the cascade of, of reaction to the virus in a very healthy person, often because their immune systems are so highly tuned that they overreact. Yeah. It's been really eye-popping the amount of medicine or the amount of health that we've learned not just about this particular pandemic, but, you know, spike proteins and, and the variants, and, but also about the, you know, mRNA vaccines, which are going to have a lot of applications. Yeah. You're basically teaching your immune system to handle whatever comes at it. Sounds like it's the future of vaccines. Yeah, and, and the idea that they would do it with so few adverse reactions. And, you know, a lot of the ones that get reported are bullshit. I don't know if you've been aware of that. You know, oh, I got a rash, you know. That goes in the same list as like, oh, I had a cardiac event in my, you know, I was in the ICU for four days. They they make no distinctions. So um, I was, you know, I know that things are more or less getting back to normal, but you've never really had much normal. But what what is that like for you? What is like a normal day if you were to have such a thing? Or what is a routine day, let's say? A routine day um, is just a busy day. I think uh, yesterday, I'll I'll give you an example of my day yesterday. It was a normal day. You know, you wake, I I try to get into the office about eight in the morning, meet with my team for about 30 minutes just to kind of get brought up to speed on issues. Starting about nine o'clock, I am in meetings almost till five or six every day. And yesterday I was in, started with the constituent meeting on some mobile home issues. Uh, went into a, a meeting. I'm, I'm the chair of the Gold Coast Transit uh, Board, so public transportation. The trolley. Is that a rotating role that goes with a supervisor job or something that you signed up for separately? It, it's something that I wanted to engage in, is, is transportation issues. So I'm on the Gold Coast Transit Board and also the Ventura County Transportation Commission. The number 16 bus. Yes, and the trolley. Yeah, I think we've been blessed in Ohio that... Uh, you know, when, when my kids were little, that was our fun day to ride our bikes down to the fairgrounds and then take the number 16 bus back. In those days, you used to be able to take your bike right on the bus, and then they got the rack in front. So now you either, if you don't get there early, then you're not going to have a place to put your bike. Well, you know if, how long somebody's been in the area if they refer to it as the scat bus. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I judge uh, how long somebody, somebody's been in the community. But, you know, yesterday we had a, a great two-hour summit, uh, myself and <clears throat> our district attorney, Eric Nazarenko, and our sheriff, Fryhoff. We had a two-hour summit on, on the fentanyl crisis and the public safety uh, yeah. issues. We did that. Um, had several. I, I went all day, and, you know, you typically do that. I leave the office of the day, and my, my assistant gives me a stack of papers that I go home and read that gets me ready for the meetings in the next day. Wow. You got your binders. Got my binders, and I go home every night. I hang out with my family, my two kids, my wife. Put them to bed about 8. Hang out with my wife for a little bit. Yeah, I was at an event with you where you had to bugger off early because you got to sing a, or read a lullaby or a, yeah. 
That's a bedtime story. That's my wife and I have an understanding that she understands the demands of my schedule, but I, I, I try my best to be home for dinner every night and to be there uh, to put my, my, my girls are five and nine. So I try yeah. to be there for bedtime every night. And that's, is that I, what she negotiated with you in exchange <laughs> for you running for a public office? She, she, she's incredibly supportive. She understands yeah. the importance of the job and wants me to, to, to be able to, to, to dedicate the time I need to the job. Mm-hmm. But what, there's also an understanding that I, I'm never going to, you, you're a father, I'm never going to get these years back and I really want to be there for my daughters and for my wife. And I feel good about my, because I just keep my kids with me. You know, they just kind of shadow me as I go about my job. And I feel like with my dad, it was the same thing. It's just modeling, you know, the masculine behaviors that are positive in the world. I, it, that's a good, <clears throat> I, I, I take my daughters to as many events as I can. Just so it's, I can try to explain to them what I do, mm-hmm. but I, I like for them to see it. See their father in action. And, you know, I think it, hopefully it motivates them when, when they're adults uh, about the importance of, of public service. And whether it's elected or with a nonprofit or whatever it is, just being involved, engaged in your community and giving back. Yeah, well, it's an amazing array of benefits when people do service, I feel that whole, I don't know if you're familiar with Bowling Alone, which is like 23 years now. It was Robert Putnam, a sociologist at Harvard, spent decades studying, you know, the service of how people show up. Because he started with uh, small towns in Italy that had city, that had bands, that had ba- concert bands, like we do with our Wednesday band concerts here in Ojai. And the health associated with that how they were healthier and happier they lived longer lives and it seemed like an odd thing so he applied that to a whole lot lot, lot, you know what do they call it longitudinal study that he was able to find in america and just you know the decline of participation he started with little league and people would say oh but that's because the kids are playing soccer well guess what ayso enrollments were going down too and he Figured out, you know, bowling alone is because people don't bowl in leagues anymore. You know, I remember my dad bowled in like two leagues a week. That was just something you did. Nobody bowls in leagues anymore. Was this in Ojai? No. Well, I wish it. No, I didn't grow up in Ojai, but I wish I did. That's for sure. Yeah, when I was growing up, the bowling alley was still there. So That was the place to hang out, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, there's not. that Places like that, they're hard. They just don't seem to be around in the same way. And, and, you know, and I get it. I know how busy I am. I know how busy most people are with jobs, with families, with kids. And it, it's tough to find time in your day uh, to give back somewhere else. Yeah. But you're, yeah, I know you're a Rotarian and, and the, the service above self. And it's so important that people find that time. And you're make a that Rotarian time. too, right? I was before I, I took office and I just, I didn't have the time to yeah. commit every week. But I Downtown. I was downtown Ventura. With uh, Rob Van Newberg. Yep, he was actually the, the president when I first Goodness joined the club. Gracious, and you still, uh, maybe that's why you're not a Rotarian anymore. <laughs> Rob became a dear friend, and I, I love Rob. And Well, I'm a Toyota guy, so I'm stuck with him. <laughs> but he is a character. I, I enjoy him. But yeah, he was the Rotary president same year I was. So we went to all the same trainings and everything. But I've known him before. I don't know. Uh, was this like 2013, 2014? Something like that. Yeah, 1415. That's, that's when I joined the yeah. downtown club. Well, that's a big club. I think you have like 150 people or something. When I was there, it was about 150. Yeah, yeah we're much smaller. <clears throat> what, 80, I think, or 75. But the range of pro- projects that you do and just being to feel involved. This goes back to the people who 
belong to a service club have something like 20% more life satisfaction. All these, Robert Putnam came up with all these measurements and he figured out that television was one of the biggest isolators of people. This was before, long before social media. Um, he followed up with a, another series of studies, one which he didn't publish because it was too pessimistic. And that was the book that he called Hunkering Down, how people just don't mix um, across socioeconomic barriers anymore. And I think about when I, my dad was a grave digger and his best friend was a state Supreme Court justice. Wow. That was like the town, because they were all the same age, you know, they went to the same high school. And yeah. I just feel like that's uh, so key to everything. Uh, something like people who belong to service clubs have half the number of colds as people who don't. Isn't that remarkable? I hadn't heard that. Well, isn't it? It seems counterintuitive because if you're more socially engaged, right? Wouldn't you think you'd have more? Well, yeah, maybe you're around so many people and around so many germs, you, your body just builds up the immunity. That, that, I hadn't thought about that. I thought it was more because if you're happier and, and healthier, you're, you know, from, from social contacts that your immune system just uh, is better tuned. But yeah, maybe, maybe, that, maybe it is just more exposure. Yeah, but it's an interesting point is that, you know, when you join these service clubs, it's, um, you're doing it not because you want, you want satisfaction, but you want to do good work and you want to serve. But I think you have found, probably like I have found, the, the amount of gratification you get from doing this work, it really is astounding. Yeah, I can't urge that upon people enough. And I feel like so many new people in Ohio, and I know the podcast is starting to get that audience. Finally, I look at the age of the audience and know that it's not just the, it used to be 60% people over the age of 65. Now that's down to like 40% in this, in almost 20% of the audience is under the age of 27. But so uh, these are these are people who, you know, need to know the community that they're in and what what makes it so special. And one of the things I was impressed with with, with your club was uh, you know, you go to a lot of service clubs whether it's Rotary or Alliance and and the average age is uh over retirement age typically and but you know, you know we celebrated our rotary club 75th the other day and i that was my as you know they stuck me as an mc at the last minute and that shows you how desperate we were because we had a health issue but your club had a, a, a really went to me an impressive amount of, of younger people young professionals yes we do now and that yeah. if you're talking about the long-term uh, success of these clubs you need to be bringing in that generation yeah so any of these Younger people who have only been to Ojai for a few years, maybe you moved here because you have kids in school. I think it's a, it's an opportunity. Reach out. I'll, I'll uh, show you around. There's many ways to serve and uh, take that satisfaction. And then you'll get half as many colds. <laughs> Win-win. <laughs> so um, some other stuff. Um, you know, I know that you got that water adjudication issue, which was thrust upon you almost immediately. Yeah, that, uh, and I don't really, I never really quite understood all of the channel keepers' propositions. I know that it went back to like 2014, and that at some point these water rights are going to have to be adjudicated because it's just, it's just so, so complicated. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I've obviously well, with my role in that as being mayor at the time when when kind of all hell broke loose in the valley, and I, I've said this before, but I, you know, it was a mistake which i don't know if i could ever apologize for enough 
um, it, it was never intended. Uh, the way it rolled out was never our intention. And I, I, I use the word that we were duped by our attorneys once, and that's not fair. Dupe's a strong word, but you know what we as the yeah. city council were, to, were told was that to get everybody playing in the sandbox nice together, and when I say everybody, I mean the primary water users, uh, the city, Casitas, uh, several of, other of the water districts, some of the large uh, ranch operations, mm-hmm. that the only way to get everybody talking towards a, a, a solution was to file this, this lawsuit. Uh, and we were told after that, um, oh, by the way, other people uh, in the Valley uh, will have to get notice of this. And we were led to believe that that notice would be a postcard. Hey, everybody, FYI, these other parties are going to be talking about water. None of us had any idea that what was going to be sent out was this 50-page legal document, which looked like a lawsuit. Yeah, which uh, cost a, a fortune. And, you know, the, the first time I even heard about this was when my dad called me. My dad, uh, you know, we were raised in the Valley, and my dad still has property up here. And my dad called me and said, why are you suing me? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And he goes, and he explained the packet that he got. And, you know, my heart just sank because I knew that 14 other thousand people had gotten that same document. And I was in the middle of a campaign where I was... Were you aiming, running for mayor? I was, no, I was running for supervisor. Oh, yeah, okay, that's right. Yeah, and I was, 2019. And I was aiming, you know, I wanted, this is my hometown community. This, these mm-hmm. are people that I was excited about representing and serving. And that dropped, and I was just mortified. And uh, we screwed that roll-ups. Uh, you roll still up. won pretty handily. I did, but I still... It, 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 the it wasn't the, a way to, to start off. No, I mean, these, yeah. many of these people who got this notice were longtime family and friends, and I was mm-hmm. mortified, and I realized that Thousands of other people got that same. And, yeah. and, but, you know, where we are today, I, I'm, I'll be the first know, person like to admit yeah, we was, screwed that up. Well, uh, it's just these issues are so complicated. But our goal in, in this all along was the recognition that um, the state was, we were told the state is going to come in with some draconian water measures that are just simply not feasible. And that was why we had to adjudicate and, and, and solve this problem at the local level rather than having some bureaucrat in Sacramento tell us how to use our water. And, and you know, I can say since that initial rollout, which was awful, um, I, I'm, I'm still involved um, in my role of supervisor in, in the mediations going on that are uh, looking to resolve this lawsuit. And I can tell you, I, I, I can't speak about specifics, but I can tell, talk generally. Uh, the collaboration in that room, in that mediation room right now is amazing. We were all on the same page. As, as mm-hmm. we predicted, the state came down with their draft uh, flow models, and it was draconian. It would uh, wipe out agriculture in the valley. It would. Yeah, well, tell me more about that. What's, uh, how would it, what were the restrictions like? Is it uh, the volume of usage or the per- percent of uh, what, you know, the allocations? Or? No, what they're saying is the state wants certain flow levels in the river. And, and those, oh, okay. oh, this goes back to the river, and, the channel and, keepers. Yeah, and, okay. those, and those flow levels are just, you can ask any water expert in the city. You know, Richard Hages is somebody I have a, an immense amount of respect for. Another friend of the pod. And, you know, the the, mo- the modeling they used to come up with these flow levels is, in my view, just junk science. They weren't yeah. realistic models. No, it's a one-size-fits-all approach. Exactly. It had no, no actual um, look at the history of our river, the actual usage of the water. And so right now we're all in this mediation room. We're all on the same page about what needs to take place. Uh, we're, I, in my view, we're very close to reaching a, a solution, and it's going to be ultimately us selling that solution to the court and overcoming what the state says. 
should be. Yeah. The, How are they lawyered up? Uh, the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have their attorney generals. They, they, they're, they're lawyered up. Oh, they're not hiring outside firms to really uh, no, batten the, down the hatches? No, the, the state water board. The staff. They're still working with staff. state water board has their in-house state lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. But we... Um, we all recognize, as I said, that it's so important that we as a, as a community, as a, we as local water users come, come up with our own solution. And I, we're, you're, we're almost there. I'd say we're on, on the five yard line and the, the mood in the room is so collaborative. It's friendly and it's just coming up uh, with the, some of these final steps. And we think we have uh, a, a model in place that would both uh, increase the flows in the river, allow for the fisheries uh, to be healthy when the time's yeah. right, and also allow... Um, water rates to remain uh, somewhat stable. I mean, water's going to get more expensive. That's just a given, but not the draconian levels that the state wants. And it's also going to allow agriculture to continue to be viable here in the valley. Well, when this is all going on in the background was the drought, you know, it felt existential at the time. And I hope we don't take our eyes off the ball just because we've had one good year. Because this is the way it is in, in Ventura County, you know, say the average rain 20 inches a year. That means we have five inches one year and 35 the next. Well, conservation know? has to remain a way of life here. We can't, as you said, we can't take our, our eye off the prize. And it's, um, yeah, I felt like we did a good job of getting the usage down. I was like, I almost I think Richard said 40% over 10 years or something, or even less than 10 years, but, you know, compared to usage 10 years ago. Yeah, no, um, every user in, 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 the, in the river watershed City of Ohio, City of Ventura, ag users, the, the municipal water districts, everybody did a great job of, of educating uh, their ratepayers on the importance of conservation. Yeah, I'm a big fishing nut, and I, I'm a big uh, fanatic about uh, salmonid species, especially because I grew up around a lot of trout fishing, and I've seen the steelhead in the Ventura River. I'd like to continue seeing them, and I hate to see that issue get demagogued because I don't think people understand their life cycles depend on these, you know, uh, big rain events. So a lot of the times when the water goes out it, through the river, it breaks the sand barrier at the mouth. The trout come up. They get upstream where, how, as far as they can. They settle in, lay their eggs, and then they wait for another storm surge to get back out to the ocean. And the same with the smolt, get themselves out to the ocean. So it isn't a year-round flow. They're not talking about that. In fact, this is a very weird study that I came across about Atlantic salmon back in the 80s, that those eggs, those salmon eggs that were desiccated, that dried up during their life cycle, had a better, not germination rate, that's not the, they had a better hatch. Those, those eggs were hardier. And it's whatever hormesis, I think, is the, is the official scientific term. Hormesis basically means whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I think the science is not out there. People, if they did understand it and they step back and were a little more thoughtful, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be, you know, the hell with these goddamn trout. What is that? Putting trout over people. It isn't like that. It's about finding some kind of a sustainable balance because... We're going to have to figure out a way to live within these confines. Yeah, and another big piece of this puzzle uh, is the Medelha Dam project that that I'm working on with many others. Yeah, it, tell you, me about that because I I've been I just gave up on following that. Uh, you get little hopeful spurts here and there, and you're thinking, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? It's such a gorgeous valley back behind there, yeah. that big old hanging rock swimming hole, and 
you see these postcards it's just if it were to be restored to its prior state it would be an attraction on the level of wheeler gorge or matilla hot springs or any of those places and that that, that is the ultimate goal is to turn that into a public recreation area because as you said it is one of the most beautiful areas in the entire world once you get back there yeah. And um, it, it, as you said, this is a project that's been discussed for over 30 years now. And I think people are sick of people, you know, the, the boy Colin Wolf. Yeah. It's, but it's, did you remember, did you know Elton Gallagly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So every time I'd run into him and we were kind of friendly, even though he's like way out there is, uh, you know, the kind of, I don't want to say right wing because he's not really, but just the crusty old conservative of the Barry Goldwater variety. But he was, we liked each other. But he would always brag about, and I brought more money to Ojai than any man ever. Because it was whatever the Corps of Engineers, $90 At that time. million. Dollars. And, uh, you know, these people won't vote for me. What's wrong with these people? Because he would get like 20% of the vote or something, or maybe 25% here. You know, he was... Uh, well, he had the wrong initial after his name. <laughs> for Ojai <laughs> Yeah, I know. But, you know, it, 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 I think that was one of the things that I'm having to overcome is this, sure, is, this is yeah, right. It's been, yeah, it has been over 30 years. But I'll tell you the progress we've made in the past. I'm constantly in Sacramento begging for money because um, this is going to be about a $200, 250000000 million project. Gosh, when, uh, is we, it like six? No, it's how many cubic yards of material? Oh, gosh. I, like, I think it is six million yards. It's millions. Yeah, that's like three Hoover dams. I looked it up one time for comparison. But enough to build three Hoover dams. But you know, when I was I was in a meeting in Sacramento a few months ago, and somebody made this point, and it was so so true. Is that you know, in these past thirty years, there's been times when people had great ideas, but there was no money, and there was time when there was money but no great ideas, and we're at this unique. A time right now where there's an idea that works and there's money available. And the idea is the notching. I'm sorry if I'm getting far Just, behind on the science, but yeah, projects. The yeah. idea is to do a, a natural flow, not to truck it out, to, mm -hmm. to allow this all of this built up sediment to, to flow all naturally. That, all that beautiful sand and for it's all gonna, our beaches. It's going to replenish the beaches. It's going to have wonderful effects on the overall uh, health of the eco, the river ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, but what we realized is for that natural flow model to work is the amount of uh, infrastructure work that had to be done downstream to allow. Mm -hmm. And so that's where all of the money is. Right? You've probably seen like keeping it out of the uh, Robles diversion dam. It's keep it. There's three levees. Uh, we've done a lot of work so far. Uh, the biggest project we just did was the completion of the Santa Ana Bridge there in Oakview. We had to redesign. Raise it, raise it up a lot higher. Huh? Raise it to allow for higher sediment flows. The next project, which should be done in the next two years, is uh, the Camino Cielo Bridge just south of the dam, building that up higher. Uh, we're going to have to um, uh, strengthen and, 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 and do some work on the Casitas Springs Levee, on the Live Oak Levee in Oakview, and the, and the Miner's Oaks Levee. So those are the big, and then obviously we're going to be completely, not, I shouldn't say completely, but uh, significantly redesigning the Robles Diversion. And those are the yeah. infrastructure projects that there's funding lined up for all of those projects that we think we're very, very yeah. confident we can get. And then once that infrastructure work's done, it's going to take about five to six years to finish that. Then we, you know, we bore uh, about a 12 foot diameter hole in the bridge, in the, in the dam, I'm sorry, and uh, let storms start flushing that sediment downstream. Um, and that, and that's, and then once the sediment has been flushed through natural, uh, through several natural storm cycles, several or sometimes it would only take one, right? Depends on the storm. But, yeah. But you know, once that sediment has 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 flowed out, uh, that then you physically take the dam down, 
And what's neat about the monies that we're bringing into this is that we're also planning for what happens next. And that goes to how do we make this the pristine recreational environment that the community wants. that's what I'm excited about. We had three uh, town halls uh, uh, two months ago where we asked people on Ventura and Ojai, you know, what do you hope to see back there? And we had a lot of participation. And everybody said the same thing. We want that open and available to the public for, for recreation. Yeah, it is beautiful. I spent a lot of time in Middle Fork of Matilha Canyon because it's one of the few places you used to be able to fish for trout. I think since the drought, though, the last few, no, since the mudslides, the tragic mudslides that took out 22 people in Montecito, on the backside of that same ridge is the headwaters of the Middle Fork of Matilla and scoured out. You can just, the incredible force. I mean, like on the Montecito side, you've got all the structures and houses and all the rest of that that was just, you know, it was just awful. But the Matilla side, it was, you can just see how much destruction went out because it was just, it scoured out that whole canyon, miles of it. Just all those beautiful swimming holes and those grottos and, you know, the, not just the fish, but the ruddy ducks and the pond turtles. And I mean, it was like a paradise back in there. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that the restoration that goes on there. There's a, I mean, the plan we have in place right now calls for this, uh, <clears throat> for us to start flushing the sediment out in 2030. And uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic that that's a, that's yeah. a, a, a realistic timeline. Now, some of these, the projects that go along with it, you're talking about some of the levees and such. That's just stuff that needs to be done anyway, isn't it? Because of the storm, the, the floods. It, it would obviously help that, but the big concern is is when this sediment starts flushing down the river, that it doesn't overwhelm these na- these kind of low-lying neighborhoods. Yeah. Interesting. It's really, that's, you got to look, uh, you got to be thinking you know, 30 years ahead or more on these kind of projects like that. And it's hard to do in a political environment where, you know, people are demagoguing and you got to run for election every few years. And it's hard to keep your eye on the ball. And, and I, I, won't even, I won't even probably be here uh, in terms of being an elected when the dam actually comes down. But it's just important that, like you said, you're, you're thinking long term, the work you do now and, and the 10, 20 year uh, impacts that this work is going to have. And so I'm happy to be doing it now. And there's going to be another supervisor that probably cuts cuts the ribbon when we take the dam down. And great for that person. <laughs> and just like the people before me did a lot of important work to get to where yeah. we are today. Including Elton Gallagher. <laughs> if we ever get any of that money. So, um, yeah, you grew up here now, not that long ago, because you're probably half my age. But what was your experience back then what was that like uh mean, ohio was an amazing place to grow up i was born in ventura but I, I moved to the valley when i was eight years old actually having dinner last night with the the, the first person i met when i moved to ojai was uh andrew ellison and 35 years late 35 years later we're still best friends and uh, had dinner with him and his family last night and that's what's neat about ojai is that you know back when i was growing up you knew everybody yeah and it was an amazing <clears throat> place to grow up uh and uh it's it's a real treat for me to not to be raising my family. You went to uh, not San Antonio school. I know you told me, but I forgot. I went to Miramonte. Miramonte Elementary. At okay. and then uh, Villanova yeah. for high school. So from uh, Villanova, that was the age of Father Glenn still, right? It was. Had him for Latin. Yeah, he was such a character. I wish people could know more about him. I know they still have a lot of information about him at the school, but... 
he was like from uh, some mill town in Massachusetts, and he had that that I think it was Lowell, Massachusetts, and he had that accent that was just so so awesome. And he uh, taught came here to teach football in like 1930 something. Yeah, he was when 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 I was there, he had been in Villanova, I think, over 50 years. And an incredible yes, man. Something the institutional knowledge that he had was unsurpassed. He was in my Rotary Club. That's how I got to know him. And you had to be careful if you sat next to him because when they were doing the finding and the fundraising, he had taken a vow of poverty. So he would just look at you like, "You going to cover that for me?" <laughs> so it could be expensive to be his friend, but it was it was well rewarded in other ways. Yeah, it's an incredible, incredible man. We have a, a building on campus that's still named after him. And Yeah, what a great guy. Yeah. I just feel like those kind of characters. You know, I used to know, I'd go to the Westridge or Star Market back in the day or Vaughn's, and I'd know half the people there probably, maybe a little more even by sight. I don't know, a quarter of them now, maybe a tenth or something sometimes. It's just changed so much. And that's just natural. That just happens. But it does feel like there's a, you know, Ojai is much more trendy and fashionable than I remember. It used to have kind of a, a little tattered at the edges, still charming, funky vibe that I miss. I miss it. Yeah, it, it, it was an amazing place growing up here. It has changed. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, what did the kids do when you were like uh, eleven, like the skater skater age? Like I see a lot of these kids in around my office, and they just, uh, you know, they seem to be quite aimless, which I can relate to. I was too. When I was growing up, my friends, if if we weren't playing ASO or Ohio youth basketball, sports were obviously a big thing. But you know, our back our playground was the river bottom at that time. Yeah, we would be in the river bottom exploring. If we, were, if we weren't at practice, we were usually in the river bottom after school, just playing explore, finding yeah. water holes, finding different things. We yeah. had some, I spent hours and hours in that river bottom growing up. That was my, that was well, my playground. Can, it's like all brand new now. You can go back and explore again, and you won't recognize anything. I'm telling you, that that great that great swimming hole where, where my kids hung out all the time when they were little, it's gone. Is it? It just got filled in. You know, it's a bend in the river, and you could jump off the cliff there. Yeah. And uh, it's all filled in. It got moved. There's another cut. It got, you know, the water will cut when it reaches a certain resistance. And uh, it's about, I don't know, maybe half a mile downstream, maybe not that far. I need to get down there myself because, you know, I'm a big, well, I shouldn't say big supporter of the, a big moral supporter of the Land Conservancy, former board member. But that is near and dear to, that's like the beating heart of Ojai, I feel, that river bottom preserve. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a great place to grow up. What, what did you do with uh, snakes and turtles and such? Uh, we tried to avoid the snakes, but, uh, you know, I, we spent a lot of time in that in the river bottom area, kind of uh, near near Rice Road, down in that part. And yeah. That's where we, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in, in Mir, the Miramani area of the valley. Yeah. And um, we would just be down there just north of the Baldwin Baldwin. Uh, road bridge there and we, we've there was one watering or one swimming hole there that was almost open year round spent a lot of time in that sw- in that swimming yeah. hole they get they get a little uh elgified towards the end of the summer and fall don't they yeah but you still if you're a kid you don't care if you get covered in pond slime oh, we, we would find chumash artifacts we were just you would always explore down there and find Shh. something new <laughs> we don't want the people to under to know there's just like um this place is 
You know, people have been here and enjoying it and loving it for thousands of years. And I just feel like part of the reason I do the podcast is to make sure people understand that, that they feel connected to this place because there ain't nowhere else like it. No, and that's that's one of the ways, you know, Ohio is such a special place that it, it would be, it would have been unrealistic to think that the secret would never get out. Yeah. Matter what an amazing place it is. Yeah, it's been out for a long time, you know. There's been waves of people who have discovered Ohio and felt like it was their discovery and that's great. I want to encourage I want to encourage that because those people feel like they have skin in the game. And I, I tell people, you know, Ventura's dealing with the same thing where it's been kind of discovered and new people are moving into town and, and you know, some of the old locals are upset about all these new people and they're they're not us. And I, I, yeah. I tell those people that it's not about uh, where the people in town come from. It's about who they are. And, you know, just because somebody's only been here a year or two years, I mean, are they, are they, are they involved in the community? Are they engaged? Yeah. Are they giving back? Are they good people? Yeah, I'd rather have somebody who's been here a year but truly invested in the community than mm-hmm. somebody who's been here 50 years and doesn't and contribute. Just, just bitches and moans. And that's, that's, so it's, it's, I think it's about the quality of people in town, not how long they've been here. Yeah. And they sort themselves out. I've seen it happen many times. People come here with a big bunch of ideas, and you know they're not willing to meet us where we're at. And then they get frustrated and think we're just a bunch of hicks. <laughs> and then they take off you know, shouting imprecations. And then you have the other people who just kind of show up. Yeah. And then they, they roll up their sleeves and get busy. And then, you know, they're the next group of people that's wondering how Ojai changed so much. So speaking of which, when you, you went to Villanova, I'm just curious where you got the bug for public service. Like, when did you decide that you wanted to like run for office and, and be, uh, you know, in the in the game well it's it's funny you mentioned villanova it's kind of the first part of that question because there i had a teacher at, at villanova bill snively mr snively oh i know bill and, bill and irene is that his wife irene is his wife she was my math teacher uh, mr snively taught government and some history and some social social studies and um he, he is by far uh, my, the favorite teacher i've ever had he was the one who got me excited about government about social studies about yeah. Yeah, he was just a, an amazing teacher and uh, you know because of mr snively i i got interested in in that in government and i went mm-hmm. to pepperdine and i studied political science and uh, after college i um, went back to to washington dc to work at the federal level and yeah tell us about that i, I didn't know that i didn't know that about you that you'd worked in the white house well I'll, and, I'll, and i'll make a, a quick uh, little foreshadow on why i decided to run for office and it's because i never wanted to go to dc i wanted to come home mm-hmm. uh, but i didn't have that, that option at the time so we can come back to that but yeah i went back to washington i was able to get a, a six-month uh, a fellowship to work in the white house actually uh it was in the time when we were working on the the free trade agreement with china mm-hmm. and i had um done some work at the college level and was able to get this this kind of internship fellowship in the United States Trade Representative, which was part of the executive office of the White House and worked on some trade agreements at that time. Uh, loved D.C. and ended up staying back there and working for a, a congresswoman for two years. And then um, who was it? Heather Wilson out of Albuquerque. Uh, yeah, I know the name. She was the, the first uh, female veteran in Congress, uh, an amazing woman, uh, Air Force graduate, Academy graduate, Rhodes Scholar, uh, did some national security work under the first Bush administration and ran for Congress, just a, a brilliant woman, actually. And um, But I got homesick at that time. I was not an East Coast guy, and yeah. law school was my excuse to, to come back home. 
place and then city council ventura yeah and so yeah going back to the, what i just kind of mentioned about finishing college um i always knew i wanted to to come back to to ventura county um, anybody who's lived here it's and you see the world and you realize that you live in heaven and uh but i you know i graduated college i was you know honor roll dean's list i, I thought i had everything going for me and i i started looking for a job and a place to live at the, at a college and this was you know tw- over 20 years ago and I, I came back and there was so few jobs and even back then housing was not quite affordable for somebody no. coming out of college and I realized that uh, I just didn't have the opportunity at that time to come back home and that's what led me to DC and law school mm-hmm. and, it, and it was a graduate from law school where I finally had the opportunity to come back and I got a job with a, a firm in town the, the Myers Witters firm I know Lee Gibson oh, yeah. and Dennis Monty Jones Witters. two OI guys Monty Witters and so I was Took a job with the Myers Witters firm, and that was my finally uh, uh, the avenue which enabled me to, to come home. And I did that. And as any young professional, when you're getting started, you're you're very selfish in terms of you're focused on building your career. And uh, so that was in 2006 when I was able to come home, and uh, ended up getting married in 2011. Had my first daughter in 2013, and as any uh, new parent knows, having that first child uh, really recalibrates uh, your worldview. No, it sure does. And your priorities. And um, it was in 2013, and so it was about 2014, 2015. Um, and I was doing some work for business clients who were having some struggles with the city of Ventura getting stuff done. And I looked around at that time, and the average age on, on city council was, I think, in the 68, 69 years old. And a lot of retirees up there, and I thought, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be really helpful for the city council to have a, a younger person engaged just who's thinking 20, 30 yeah. years down the line because you have kids and you you don't want your kids to have the experience you did about no jobs, no affordable housing. And I thought, you know, a city, I think a healthy city council has a mix of of of, of, of seasons of life. It's, it's helpful to have some people oh, who are absolutely. retired who, who, who represent that segment of, of, of the community. But it's also helpful to have a business owner, uh, a young person, uh, someone with young kids and to have that diversity of thought. I think that's what makes a healthy uh, government body. And so I wanted to run and kind of fill that role and that's what initially got me uh, interested in running for office and what was the political situation at the time when what was who was the vacancy and how did you get the on the ballot and everything and what was the you know the issues it was um i i was running uh, uh, you know you know my, my my platform was you know what is ventura going to be in 20 or 30 years and what are we doing right now to prepare for for that uh future and um, it, before it was, this was before we had a district election. So it was an at-large election. Yeah. There was a three seats open, two incumbents were running, and it, and my my campaign was not about attacking anybody. It wasn't about mm-hmm. saying that the city council was doing anything wrong. My my whole campaign was just the mindset that I was going to bring to this this body. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, and to this day, I, I it really peeves me when people get involved in politics and it's all about nasty, bitter, attacking campaigns. I don't think that's healthy at any level, but a particular to, particularly the local level. Unfortunately, it's effective. Yeah, it, it unfortunately it is. But I have a, a whole world of respect for people who, who don't succumb to that pressure to go negative, to go nasty. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something that I, I really try, it's a, a, an ethic that I really try to keep. I do think that the people that get written in history books are the ones that Tried to rise above, you know. Yeah, I've, I've run two campaigns now, and um, I've never gone negative. 
uh, it's not who I am, but it's, I, just, I think that's just setting the wrong example uh, for, for other people who will, will run down the line, that, this, that, that, that that's an effective mm-hmm. way to campaign. Well, you were talking a little bit about affordable housing, and that is an, an, another intractable problem, I feel like. How, how, what's your approach? Uh, affordable housing, and, and that's a segment of just affordability in general. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's one issue that kind of keeps me up at night when I'm thinking 20 years down the line is, is just the affordability of Ventura County. And, and Ojai is a, just a microcosm of that. It is becoming, in my view, just harder and harder for the average person to be able to afford yeah. to live here. And I think in it's my, not healthy. It's not healthy. That is that is that stratification where people are hunkering down in their socioeconomic groups and not interacting with each other in a community where your like your your cops and your teachers can't afford to live. It's uh, that's how this polarization takes root because people are separated. I think that's the perfect analogy. If if you're in a community where your teachers, your nurses, your police officers, if those people can't afford housing something's wrong. And there's a lot of teachers and a lot of nurses and a lot of uh, police officers right now who are struggling to find affordable housing. And these are people who make good yeah. good livings. And if, if, if this continues, you become a community of, of haves and have-nots. And, Walled off and, and that is, dated communities. And some people might like that. It's, it's not the community that I personally would want to live in. And I mm. think most people agree with me that we need to do something so that uh, the people who've been here, people who want to stay here, uh, that we have the, the housing uh, to where they can afford it. We have the jobs that support the cost of housing. Yeah. It's it's a f- hard problem. But I, at the end of the day, um, I don't shy away from it. We, we need to be building more housing yeah, and more you, affordable housing. Some, some models that you've seen, uh, best practices in other parts of the country maybe, or... Um, proposals on the boards that you think are promising? You know, uh, one example which I point to, which I think was a, a really successful model when it comes to housing, is, is River Park at the collection. Okay. It is... A, a, I like the design. It's nice and clean and modern, neutral palette. It's not, uh, you know, it looks looks well-crafted, but probably not terribly expensive. Not terribly expensive, but it, it, you're right. It's, when I was campaigning out there and you're, I was walking, it, you felt like you are on a movie set because it really was clean uh, beautiful, but w- w- what I found was really successful about the River Park model was the diversity of housing that it offered. There was standalone single-family homes, uh, there was townhomes. How many units is that? Uh, thousands. Yeah. And but you know it, it, it had everything from the single family to the to the condo to the townhome to the to the to the uh, low-income affordable apartments, and all of it together. And I think that's the model: is that you had a you know a low-income apartment. A block from a, a nice single-family home, mm-hmm. but it was it was great, and it yeah. wasn't. You talk about being walled off. There's no, nothing about that community that is walled off, and I think well, that's I, a healthy model of housing. Well, my my yardstick for measuring the health of a neighborhood is the trick or treat test. Do the kids trick or treat there? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that is a handy stand-in for a healthy neighborhood. Yeah, and I, I I was there at Halloween last year, and there was thousands of kids out there trick or treating. And yeah. you go to the River Park now, and you, you look who's living there. And it's it's the teachers, it's the nurses, it's the firefighters, it's the police officers. It's 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 just a, what I view a real model of of, of housing. Yeah. We got a project coming here to Ojai 
which I, of course, can't remember any of the details about, but it's like 50 units or something out there. Continuation of the Sycamore Homes Project. Same people, Cabrillo. Oh, Cabrillo. Yeah. yeah. That, that, I believe you're talking about the project that's going to be coming to Miramani. Oh, no, I think I'm talking about the project that's going out. To, oh, um, off uh, Bryant. Yes. Yes, I'd heard about that. Yeah, that uh, Sycamore Homes was quite controversial when it went in and traffic issues and so forth. All valid. But if you look at the neighborhood now, it's settled in very nicely. That's a trick-or-treat neighborhood. Yeah. I think that's uh, um, something we need going forward. The, the problem, that, from my perspective as an elected official, is that for so long, uh, so many communities um, were incredibly resistant to any new housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the and point, for legitimate reasons, absolutely, yeah. because nobody. I mean, like for instance, the, the river, the collection, the river park, that would never work in, in the Ohio Valley. No, there's just not room. There's no not the scale. Uh, this exactly. Um, but Ohio and many other communities uh, across the state for many years were just resistant to housing for for density reasons, for traffic reasons, for for services, and, mm-hmm. and there were some le- legitimate concerns there. But I think it went so far that no housing was being built. And that, and because of that, the state has now come down and put new housing laws in place, which yeah. really limit the ability of local actors to have any say in what type of housing That's happens. Right. If you don't figure out your own solutions, it will be foisted upon you. Yeah. And, you know, there, with some of these new state housing laws that, that coming out of Sacramento over the past five years, um, if you're building an affordable housing project, Anywhere in the state right now, there is almost nothing that a city council member, a supervisor can do to stop that. And the yeah. neighbor, neighbors don't like hearing that, but I tell them this is a result of... Uh, uh, of not uh, taking care of it earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited. I just mentioned that the, the I think it's a 40-unit affordable housing project that's going to be going in at the old Gaslight restaurant, at least planning. Oh, I got you. And I heard from some of the neighbors there on the on in that above the project there. Yeah, Highlands and, uh, apartments. Yep, yep. and uh, they were just concerned about having you know forty units right there and all the traffic and and I said yeah. I said those are legitimate concerns and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it because under the new state People housing, don't like to hear that. They yeah. want you to throw yourself in front of the bulldozer. Yeah, but you know, and I yeah, but I also tell them that this is housing that is critically needed. This yeah, it, it's housing. They got to think. You know the there's. You know, the NIMBYism, the not in my backyard is now, there's like this new, you know, YIMBY, yes in my backyard. But there's suspicions about a lot of these YIMBY movements that they're being funded, that they're not so, quite so grassroots as they make out. So I just, it's like, that's what I'm saying. The people that line up on either sides of this issue, it's, it's just divisive. It is divisive, and you know. But, you know, we talk about homelessness and wanting to solve homelessness. At the end of the day, to, to, to make a true dent in the problem, we need more housing units. And that program or that project in, in Miramani is going to house people who are formerly homeless, uh, give them uh, stable housing, uh, wraparound services, uh, the care they need to, to get off yeah. the streets long term. And it's you can't be um, anti-housing and pro-homeless. You, you, you need housing to address homelessness and, and it has to go somewhere human need it has to go somewhere yeah <clears throat> i just uh, i just really uh, don't even know how to get my mind wrapped around the solutions i know a lot of talk about the adus i think that's a legitimate approach but it's just not that's not going to take care of it itself 
ADUs is a huge part of the the overall solution. It's yeah. not it's not it's not the end all. high especially, I think. Yeah, we at the county just just revised our <clears throat> excuse me our ADU ordinance to make it easier to do ADUs. I recognize, you know, what, what, what people don't understand is that every city and every county in the state has what's called arena number, regional housing needs assessment, and it's assigned by your local planning region here in Ventura County, mm-hmm. we're part of the Southern California Association of Government, SCAG, and you get assigned these numbers, and if you don't uh, plan and zone for that number of units, uh, you, what's, developers are able to use what's called the builder's remedy and come in and do whatever they want, essentially. And so, like in the, in the city of Ventura, their arena number over the next uh, several years, they need to plan and zone for 5,000 housing units. Wow. That's like 12,000 people or something. People wonder, you know, why, why there's so much building in, in the city of Ventura. They see that, and, it's, and we're not even close to meeting that 5,000 number. And if wow. we don't, developers can come in, and you have no say over how these projects are developed. And it wasn't, I, I wish I was better informed, but... The Rhino number for Ojai was like 240 or something. something I think it's the low 200s. Yeah, I just, that's a lot of, lot of homes for a, a community with 3,000 households. That's not, maybe not quite 10%, but close. That's a big, big jump for a place where it's not really growing. Ojai isn't growing. And partly the reason is because people cannot afford to live here. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's just, there's no, Ojai is in such a defined geographic area. There's not a lot of room to grow, and it's, fairly built out yeah. and but you know if, if ohi doesn't plan and prepare for those allow and from a zoning perspective those 220 units uh, they lose all ability to have any local control over what's ultimately uh, yeah. built it will be it will be done for us if we don't do it ourselves yeah so um, i was gonna i'll you've been very generous with your time but i'm just like had some other questions like uh you know your mentors obviously there's been people who have uh got you set off on this path yeah and I, I mentioned earlier i think one bill, of bill snively bill my snively. trivia buddy we played uh we played trivia at the my, jester well there too but at uh the deer lodge um after that but yeah bill he's good he's a smart guy yeah, yeah he, he had his whole team and then, you know at, you know when you when you're in high school you know the teacher has a different role than when you're out of high school and and when I was in high school, I always looked up to him as, as a more of a teacher, as an authoritarian figure, mm-hmm. somebody uh, somebody who I respected and who I just loved being in his classroom. And then it was fun because when we graduated, um, my friends and I started joining him and his team, and we we would go and do trivia with him, him and his team every week. And he became more of a a friend at that point. Yeah. And uh, just I, I have so much uh, respect and admiration for for Bill. And yeah, I've seen him a couple times. Uh, Fairly recently, but Bill, come on out to trivia again. We miss you. Yeah, he's living in town now, so he's yeah, no excuse. I see his wife on the bike trail pretty much every day. Yeah, I, I saw him uh, two weekends ago at a, a, an event at Villanova, and it was really great catching up with him. Yeah, and who else? Anyone else? You know, besides, uh, what, what about role models too? Well, first mentors, but then, you know, maybe historical figures or, or uh, role models. Uh, that you know, I, I just you know from a personal level, my father is somebody mm-hmm. who I just. Uh, the, the model that he set for me as as a as a dad is something that I'm trying to emulate with my daughters. Uh, he was yeah. one of those. My dad was one of those guys uh, who he wasn't a man of of many words, but when he spoke, it was usually important. Yeah. And he, I think it, he taught me the value of of, of listening over talking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I, his work ethic. I I saw how hard he worked to support the family. Uh, 
how when he wasn't working, he was fully committed to the family. And he, I just learned, so, and as I get older and as I became a father myself, I, you look back at your own father and I look back at my father and go, wow, he was just a, an example of what I want to be. And, um, yeah. but you know, going back historically, uh, you know, the person I, I, I keep going back to, and it might be kind of cliche, but it's, it's Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Just it's hard g- to get around just because of his unusualness. It was two things that, about him that really stood out to me. One was the fact that when you're in elected office, you have to have the backbone to make hard decisions, decisions which are going to be uh, popular to some and not popular to others, but to have mm-hmm. the, the fortitude and then the courage to make that decision because you think it's what's best. And the other thing that I really respected about Abraham Lincoln was that he didn't shy away from differences of opinion. That uh, uh, the team arrivals, the team arrivals approach. Yeah, the Doris fa- Kearns Goodwin book, awesome book. I highly recommend. An amazing book, and the fact that he had the the self confidence to bring that diversity of thought into his cabinet. Uh, I, I heard a quote recently where it's about you know uh, the people who surround themselves uh, by by yes men and just the. <sighs> The, what, versus the people who surround themselves with people who are going to tell them the truth. Yeah. And the way, the fact that he was of, of the school of thought that I'm going to surround myself with people who are different parties, think differently than me, uh, it's something that, that uh, really impresses me that he had the self-confidence uh, to, 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 to be that kind of leader. Yeah. And to do it in the most crushing crisis this nation has ever faced that would have... Civil war, slavery, <sighs> issues that... Um, Still haunt us to this Still day. today. But he had the, yeah. the, the moral fortitude and the courage to make hard decisions, which in the long run proved to be the right decisions. Yeah. Comes the hour, comes the man. I don't know if that's always true because we've had other crises in this country that didn't go quite, uh, quite so well. But the thing that impressed me most about him was, you know, his willingness to reconcile. At all points, he kept that, that open. Yeah. And... Uh, I forget what it was. Some uh, towards the end of the war, lady was hectoring him about being too conciliatory to the South, and he said, um, "You know, the, or she says, like the South is our enemy, sir. We must crush them. We must destroy them." And he says, "But, madam, do we not destroy our enemies when we make them our friends?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh God, that just hit me like a ton of bricks." Yeah. I'm like, "That is." Us. That is a man that we we need more of that. Yeah. So yeah, I applaud you for having that as your role model. That's a, that's a good one, and also being able to pick General Grant out of the squabble of the War Department against everybody else's recommendations because he got drummed out of the service for being a drunk, and he was a complete failure at everything he'd done. And then war happened, and then. Another comes the hour, comes the man. Yeah. And Lincoln recognized that that was what he needed, somebody who would fight. Yeah. So anyone else? W.E.B. Dubois. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you know, I, 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 I love reading uh, history. Mr. Snively is one of the people who got me really loving history. And I love going back and reading the stories of the old presidents and uh, the issues of their days and the decisions mm-hmm. they had to make and some of the, the other presidents that just uh, I love reading about, you know, Teddy Roosevelt. You know, I, I always enjoyed this his um, 
his zest for life, and his brashness, and uh, you know, it's, it's I, I've always been, he's always been somebody that just impressed me. With this, he was a, kind of a Renaissance man of his time, yeah. and I, he I was did, a jingoistic uh, war hawk, though. That he was, was thing, yeah. uh, but he, he just, he, 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 he was uh, vivid. He was vivid and he was intense, and uh, but you know, I, I didn't know this. That I have a, actually a picture in my office. He when he was president, he actually came to Ventura County. Oh yeah, he came uh, in 1902. Um, was it the midterm elections? But California used to be a swing state. Well, there's a picture of him riding down Main Street on horseback with the sheriff and a, uh, the sheriff's posse. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's an old classic picture that I love. And well, there's a Thatcher school story that he was that the Thatcher boys were riding in the parade and their horses and and uh, when he got to the grandstand and making a speech or whatever and. Uh, he said uh, he forgot the name of the school, and he was just like, and then that that school up there where they where they teach the boys to ride horses and to shoot a rifle and tell the truth. Yeah, he couldn't remember the name of the school, but he covered for himself very well. I mean, yeah. Regardless of politics, I, I love just reading about the presidents and seeing how they made decisions. Yeah. It's always fascinating for me. Can you imagine yourself as president? No, no. <laughs> What is your ambition? Where would you settle? Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, deaf things come up, and I'm not putting you on the spot no. here. But it's um, I get that asked. I get asked that question a lot, and, and I know every politician says this that I'm happy where I am. Mm-hmm. But uh, I am truly happy where I am. Um, I, I know all of our our state and our, our federal leaders, and they're just great people. I think they're doing a great job. But I talk to them, and I see uh, their schedules, and you know, they're gone a minimum of minimum of three nights a week. Um, and mm-hmm. as somebody with a five-year-old and a nine-year-old and, and a wife that I want to see more of, not less of, yeah. I just, I, I you know, one, one of the Congress people who I'm particularly close with, and I, I won't name him, but he, he, he told me, um, he goes, Matt, I was a supervisor once and it's the best job I ever had because you work on really important issues and you're in the community every day. Mm-hmm. And best of all, you get to sleep in your own bed every night. That's a good point. And that really rang true to me, and it's something that I don't want to give up the time I have right now with my girls. Well, I'll tell you the thing about kids, and maybe between the ages of like three and eight, I remember my kids were so hysterical. They were just like little stand-up comedians all the time. And I just wish I'd have written it down. So that's my advice to you as a young father. Write it down, because you'll be able to use it at their weddings and at their graduations, and you'll have a lifetime of anecdotes, because... I remember my daughter came to me like a, you know, filing my taxes or something in the office. And, you know, we come in the office and sit down and then she tells the CPA, "Um, just so you know, I'm not his wife. That's my mama. And I was thinking, oh, you know what? What she felt she had to, why'd she feel like she had to tell him that? (laughs) That was cute. No, but I I, I feel really fortunate to be in the position I am and I I love it. I'm really happy with kind of where I am in life right now, and I don't want to change anything, and so I'm good. And and uh, you know, we I don't I don't intend I never intended this to be a career. So my my, my goal is to I'm gonna I would love to serve one more term, and and then pass it off uh, to the next person to come in and take up the mantle. Yeah, that sounds great. Why don't we uh, close it out there? And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan. Just thinking out loud. So I hope you were able to follow along with that discussion. I felt uh, Matt is a very intelligent and earnest young man, although 
he might be 40 years old. Everybody's young to me. Uh, I love the discussions about the homelessness and the uh, affordable housing because I've often felt like those problems are just unsolvable. But then you get into conversation with people <clears throat> who have better access to information, who are aware of best practices in other parts of the country, and who just don't give up. They're just indefatigable. And uh, Matt is one of those guys. So in a way, everything kind of loops back into other earlier episodes, like the homelessness issue and foster care with uh, Dan Parziel, Mesa Farms. I think uh, that's a good episode for you to scroll back to and listen and how uh, so many innovative solutions can come up when people are just willing to roll their sleeves up and get busy. And it's a big part of our discussion about public service and civic engagement, how critical it is, not just for the community, but for each other. You just live a better life when you serve. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.